This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Few phrases engender less confidence than, I'm not an expert, but... However, I'm going to start this podcast by saying, I'm not an expert, but we're going to talk about saltwater fly fishing. Let me qualify that a little bit. So I'm primarily a trout fisher, and then underneath that, I fish warm water species, and then... I would say saltwater is probably like a third position solidly. That being said, I do fish saltwater quite a bit. I'm living in the North Shore of Massachusetts, so I have a spectacular uh, saltwater fishery right at the uh, backyard, and I also have access to the main coast and the Cape of Massachusetts, and so there's a lot of opportunities that I've been able to explore, and I'm learning and I'm spending a lot more time doing it, and I think I've kind of dialed down the basics. I wouldn't say I'm an expert saltwater fisher, but I guess I wouldn't say I'm an expert trout fisher also. Um, But I don't think that you necessarily need to uh, have all the I's dotted and T's crossed to share some basic information. So the reason why I'm doing this podcast, even though I I will readily admit that I am not uh, an expert in this, is that I think I have the kind of knowledge that is necessary for my audience, for you, for the people listening to uh, the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast and the people who are um, reading castingacross.com. The reason being, looking at the comments I get, looking at the demographics of where people are reading, most folks that are listening and reading are trout fishers, which makes sense. The majority of what I write about is trout, and then warm water being a second, salt water being a third. So hopefully this will be helpful to you. But if you are a saltwater fly fisher and you haven't tuned out already, which I wouldn't blame you if you did, you know this is important because as I've said multiple times before, I think there's value in hearing the basics spoken of in different ways, which helps you, first of all, understand why you do what you do and also helps you communicate 
um, why you do what you do. So many things in, in life, but in fly fishing, I think we just take for granted. You know, why is a tapered leader tapered? I don't know. It's just the way it is. Um, you know, what's the difference between a four weight and a six weight? Uh, one's bigger and one's lighter. Um, you know, things like that, that we might have kind of a half answer and we can functionally get it. But the more we know about something, the better we can communicate it to somebody who is just getting started or have to answer questions. And we begin to build our own knowledge base and, you know, the nuances uh, start to, to fill in. All right. Huge preamble. But here's what I want to talk about. What you need to just get out in the salt and fish. A lot of people might be fishing only once a year or twice a year, but a lot of places you go, if you're going to be doing a DIY trip, so you go into the beach with your family, you know, you're going to, to New Jersey or you're going to Maryland or you're going to the Carolinas and you just want to get out in the water and fish for a few hours after the kids go to bed or you have a couple hours in the middle of the day where you can fish. You don't want to necessarily spend $600, $800 on a guide. You also don't want to um, rent fly gear, um, which probably if you do that once or twice, you'll be able to pay for you know the gear yourself. So I want to give you a little bit of a primer on what you need to get out and do some DIY fly fishing. So the first thing, the most important thing, is a fly rod, obviously. It's also the most fun thing to buy. Who doesn't want another rod? Here is my suggestion buy a fly rod that you'll be able to use at home. So even if you don't live by the ocean, buy a fly rod that you'll be able to use at home. And what this will do is this will help you determine what rod weight to get. So this is what I mean by that. If you live somewhere where you are able to fish for smallmouth bass, where you're able to fish for large carp, and where, or you're, where you're able to fish for trout with large streamers, then get an eight weight that eight weight will be more than sufficient for most saltwater applications. Now, if you live somewhere where your fishing opportunities may expand beyond what you're used to into things like pike and muskie or a larger bass, then get a 10 weight. That will do great for what you're doing back home, but then also give you those opportunities to throw bigger flies and bigger, heavier lines in the salt. So what this does is it takes your investment of anything from a couple hundred dollars to, you know, if you wanted to, well over a thousand, and it makes that rod much more versatile. You haven't just gotten a rod that only goes with you in case you and the family go to the beach for a vacation for the week or you find an opportunity to get away with some friends and go do a DIY trip for a couple of days. But this is a rod that's also useful to you. And then of course, you know, you can split the difference and get the nine weight also. I think the nine weight is pretty perfect for a lot of shore fishing where I live. Um, both for the, its ability to throw heavier lines and heavier flies into wind, um, with a wind either at your back or, or with the wind. Um, but uh, an 8 weight and a 10 weight also have, have their merits. But I would say if you're getting a rod that's only going to be used in the salt every once in a while, that uh, think about how else you can use that rod, um, and, and then you get a lot more value out of it. But then the next important thing is can you cast that fly rod? Um, a lot of four weights and five weights for trout fishing, even if that rod's not a great fit, you're able to work around because there's not a whole lot there. In fact, a good line can turn a kind of an inferior rod into a great casting tool. Similarly, a good caster can turn an inferior rod into a good casting tool. However, when you get into these heavier rods, and even with the modern technology being what it is, the flex um, profiles and the tapers of these rods and how lightweight they are, 
you know, all of those things still taken into account, throwing an eight weight for half a day, throwing a 10 weight for half a day is, is going to start to uh, magnify some of those um, flaws in the casting. So if it's not a great fit for you, then don't get it. That might even be um, indicative of, of going down to a slower rod, which generally in saltwater terms, that means a less expensive rod. Not always the case, but sometimes um, that, that's the way it, it pans out. That being said, you can get some pretty decent um, 8, 9, 10 weights for right around $200. Um, most of the major manufacturers have uh, they a series that's their entry-level series or one above that that is more than, uh, than sufficient for uh, the needs of somebody who is not only an occasional saltwater angler, but somebody who's in the salt all the time. That being said, and I'm, I'm, I know I've given like a thousand caveats already and we're only seven minutes into the podcast saltwater is i personally believe really where you see the benefits of getting a premium fly rod you know casting those 800 900 rods really is um is a huge difference now if you're fishing half days or a few hours here and there and you're only doing it a couple times a year is it necessary to make that investment Probably not unless you have means and unless that's a, a something that matters to you. Or maybe you realize, you know what, this is a rod I can use at home for a smallmouth or I can use at home for pike or whatever. But um, that's totally unnecessary. I just think it's worth mentioning that um, more so than um, most warm water applications and most trout applications, uh, the higher end uh, saltwater rods really, really do a lot for you. And this, this matters because you're not just casting flies, you're casting heavy flies, you're casting heavy wet flies, you're casting heavy wet wind resistant flies, and you're also casting weighted lines, which we'll talk about here in a minute. So hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of what rod to look for. I'd say find a rod that can do double duty for you back at home if you're not anywhere close to the water, and find something that fits your casting stroke. So go to fly shops and do this. Do not, just because you're spending only, you know, quote unquote, only $200 on a fly rod, don't just buy it off the rack online. Go to the fly shops, try them out. Tell them what you're doing. Tell them, you know, if, if my whole, you know, dual purpose uh, scheme makes sense to you, tell them that. And they might say, well, you know, this will work for the salt, but this will really um, be an excellent rod for streamers, for trout, or this will really be a great largemouth rod where you're fishing and you'll be able to spend a couple hundred bucks and get a good dual purpose rod. All right, rods. A whole lot less to say about reels. Um, Reels, again, more important than the salt than in uh, freshwater, but not necessarily because of the drag. I feel like most drag systems of the reputable reel manufacturers these days are rock solid. But what you're looking for is not just a solid drag, but a sealed drag. And um, that is going to give you more longevity uh, in your reel. And that's really a, kind of a, a good time to interject all this stuff. If you aren't fishing in the salt regularly, um, you're going to have to get used to rinsing off your gear. And this is what what would allow you to get a relatively inexpensive reel, something that might not be as um, industrial and heavy duty. Uh, those die cast aluminum reels, there's some spectacular die cast aluminum reels um, for under $200 that were great in freshwater and saltwater. And that would probably be the best option for somebody who is getting into it for the first time and wants something inexpensive and something that's going to 
really perform great if you're only using it every once in a while. This isn't what you'd want if you were um, you owned a boat or if you were a guide, but if you're just going to be out every once in a while, you take care of it, you don't drop it on rocks too much, and you rinse it, rinse it, rinse it, then a machine, or excuse me, a, a die-cast aluminum reel is going to be more than sufficient if it has a sealed drag, and that drag is, um, is, is sufficient for, for handling big fish, which virtually everything is these days. Rod, reel, line. So um, I've said this before in other contexts, but if you only had um, you know $300 to spend on reel and line, you've got your rod already lined up. You know that's priority number one. That you've got maybe 300 bucks or 250 bucks left in your budget for uh, reel and line. I would skimp on the reel and spend more on the line. As long as you check the boxes that I mentioned earlier with the uh, reel then get a better line. I'd rather have a $150 reel and $100 line than a $250 um, reel and the, you know, the cheapest line you can find. Um, a good line is going to A, um, stand up better to uh, time and to the harsher conditions of salt, and B, it's gonna cast better. You want a line with a taper profile that is going to operate optimally at those 40, 50, 60 foot distances and longer rather than maybe a general purpose fly line which is going to really max out at that 50 foot uh, length. Uh, also, you're gonna want something that is um, you know, built for the salt, gives you that longevity. This will also turn, as I mentioned earlier, that lower end fly rod, that maybe introductory level fly rod, into a much more effective casting tool. I, I can't say it enough. People don't cast their rods as well as they can because they put cheap line on expensive rods. Um, th this is something that, I'm, and I'm not the only one saying this, a lot of people are saying it. So get good line. Also, get a floating line and a sinking line. This is maybe where you start to get into quote unquote, you know, um, wants over needs, but having two spools, one of a floating line and one of a sinking line is very, very important for a lot of the environmental conditions you're going to find. Different times of uh, year, different tides, uh, you, you, there's a chance that you might have the perfect presentation, but the fish are not going to look, you know, up or look down. So getting a sinking line is important. And what I would do is, um, well, there's a few a few things to think about, but first of all, finding a uniform sinking line, um, not just a sink tip like you would use for um, you know trout or something like that, but a, a, a like a depth charge or something like, like, uh, like Orvis cells um, is, is a great line because it is thinner diameter and it really does a good job getting that fly down. It's a beast to cast, but this is an essential part of the saltwater game. And honestly, it should be an essential part of all of your fly fishing, having that at your disposal, because it really does make a difference. And uh, it, it saves um, a lot of jury rigging up, you know, poly leaders and weight and weighted flies. And if you just have a sinking line, um, it, it can make things a lot easier. So if you can get another spool, another line, I would say to, uh, to definitely do so. What's next? What's next is leaders. So buy your tapered knotless leader and loop it on there. Now, personally in the salt, because of the surges of some of these fish, even when they're close, that just blows virtually every freshwater fish um, out of the water. Um, 
I don't like the loop-to-loop -loop connections in the salt. Um, I'll tie a, um, if, I, if I do, I clip the one that's on there off and I put a new one on there with really heavy um, butt section fluorocarbon and make that loop really, really tiny. Um, but I like a, a nice uh, smooth transition um, in, uh, in the, between the line and the leader. Then I carry three or four spools of fluorocarbon on me, some 10, some 12, some 15, and some 20. Uh, so I can change the length of the leader and really rebuild that whole leader from tippet material. Um, it, you don't need the kind of finesse that you might be used to if you're fishing for trout. So having a knotless tapered leader as a base, as a butt, and then to add on to it with fluorocarbon uh, tippet is a great way to go. Okay, now flies. This is a ridiculous question to try to answer, but there's actually a really good answer, and that's just have a box full of clouser minnows. And if you're going to have clouser minnows, have them in white, chartreuse and white, olive and white, and black. That's a great start. From there, you add your deceivers, you add your poppers, you add whatever is good for where you're going. You call the fly shop, and if you want to buy them ahead, buy them ahead. If you want to buy them when you get down there, get them when you get down there. But you tie these knots good, and um, you're going to be able to hang on to these four, five, six dollar flies uh, for quite a while. The hooks will probably go before the fly goes um, if you're if you're fishing them well, or they'll get chewed up, I should say, um, before you lose the fly. But you really can't go wrong with weighted clouser minnows. Um, you know, you can strip them fast across the top if you don't have a popper. You can drag them really slow and twitch them along the bottom, and they might think it's a shrimp or a crab. You know, and those colors, again, white, olive and white, chartreuse and white, and black are great colors to kind of cover um, the, the entire spectrum of, of virtually all bait fish and other forage um, critters that uh, saltwater fish are looking for. Of course, there are some things that those flies are not going to catch um, certain times of year, um, certain species, but that's a great basis. If you can, and if you can tie flies, you can tie clouser minnows. You just got to get some, you know, size two or one on hooks. And then actually I like also, um, you know, if you're going to have some flexible flies in your box, tie those clousers with synthetic, um, hair, super hair, or, you know, the fake bucktail or whatever. Um, because what you can do then, especially if you use like a size two hook, um, you can trim them down and make them shorter if the flies are way too big. So I would tie my tails on my synthetic clousers a little bit longer. Um, that gives me the flexibility to have a little bit bigger fly even if the hook is small. And then if I need to, I can trim them back if I'm getting short strikes or I'm looking around and all the, the bait fish are much smaller than what I'm fishing. All right, so those are your, your, your terminal you know, gear. Rod, reel, lines, plural, leader, and flies. You're fishing. You got that stuff, you're fishing. Um, what other stuff is necessary? Of course, sunglasses. I would rather, I mean, there's no way you can not have anything that I just mentioned, but before anything else, have the sunglasses. But that's true for, for fishing in general, fly fishing um, in particular. Uh, you need sunglasses. You see structure, you see cover, you see fish, and you can stay safe. And if we're, you're, you're listening to me, chances are it's because you're going somewhere new or different. You want to know where you're walking and where you're waiting. Um, which brings up some of the next things. Uh, first is wading boots or shoes. Um, if you're on sand, you're 
you're good to go. Go barefoot, whatever, you know, unless you're afraid of, of uh, crabs, um, in which case, you know, wear your old tennis shoes. Um, but if you're going to be on rocks and those rocks have um, seaweed, if those rocks have barnacles, if those rocks have, you know, clams, you know, you want a pair of heavy duty wading boots and you want some metal spikes or bars. I still fall down and I've got, you know, the industry top of the line, you know, boots. Um, I, my corkers are awesome, but there's really no way that you can wade on rocks at any speed and not risk falling down. And I wade much faster than I should. My corkers are great. I've got the big industrial spikes on them, um, but I still slide around sometimes if I step poorly. So uh, this is a much more dangerous proposition too than uh, wading around in your trout stream. So make sure you have good boots with uh, metal spikes, not studs, but actual spikes or bars if you're going to be walking on rocks. And you don't don't get you know you see people out on jetties and sometimes that just makes me nervous. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I don't know. Jetties are kind of terrifying in my mind. After that, a good pair of pliers. You never know what you're going to catch. There's stuff out there with teeth and there's stuff out there with spikes and you 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 have no clue what you're going to catch in the in the salt. And that's one of the cool things about it. I mean, there's some variety in freshwater you get surprised by some quote-unquote bycatch, but in the salt, I mean, there is a remarkable diversity of species. And a lot of these things have teeth and sharp spines and, you know, tails with whips and it's like the stuff that they draw on the edges of the maps back uh, when they still hadn't mapped everything out. That's the stuff that you're catching. So a good pair of pliers that you can kind of grab that fly and just shake that crazy-looking fish loose. And even if you're not sure, it's just best to you know take caution um, and uh, use your pliers, not your fingers. Don't lip everything like a bass. That's not a good idea. And then a stripping basket. Stripping baskets are going to make your casting easier across the board, and they're going to make your casting possible if you are around aquatic vegetation or rocks or clamshells or mussels or whatever. You know, it also preserves your line. It, the tide is great at, at washing your uh, expensive fly line in between your boot and the rock that you're standing on. So uh, having a stripping basket kind of keeps that line there, which preserves your line, uh, makes it so you're able to cast and shoot line, um, but also um, you know, you're, you're focusing on your casting. And if you've got that heavy line and that heavy fly, you do want to focus on the casting. Recently, I was trying to be cute and quick, and I was just trying to get a few casts in before I had to go. And I was looking down, trying to untangle the line from my feet, and that clouser hit me right in the middle of the chest, right through my waders. Thankfully, it wasn't my neck or my face or anything like that, but a stripping basket would have been very, very beneficial in that situation. So that is kind of a quick synopsis of the gear that you should consider getting if you are a trout guy or gal or a warm water fly fisher and you want to give saltwater fly fishing a chance. If you do have those opportunities when you're on family vacations or it's a few hours away and you figure that this year might be a good year for you to try to catch a redfish or try to catch a striper, um, these are some things to think about. Part two is going to be more about um, technique, 
location, and tides. But honestly, just like any other kind of fishing, go out and give it a shot. The first stripers I caught, I just walked into the ocean and I started casting, and lo and behold, I caught fish. Um, the same thing with my first sea trout. No clue what I was doing, you know, both up in northeast and down in the, the Gulf Coast. Just walked out in the water and started casting. And I started catching fish. So, um, is that the the highest percentage game? No, but you know, you aren't gonna have any guarantees in fly fishing, regardless of where you are or what you're doing. But we will talk in a future episode about some locations, techniques, and that uh, incredibly um, vital topic of tides. All right, this week on casting across, uh, two articles. The first one that uh, came out was a fly fisher's pickerel apology, in which I talk about how I love pickerel. So if you never caught a pickerel, read this. If you hate pickerel, read this. It might uh, change your mind. And then on Wednesday, I released a article called Vests and Deep Water. It's a story about my first fly fishing vest and how it uh, uh, came with me on a harrowing adventure of sunken canoes and melted shoes. Today's recommendation is for Bill Dance's YouTube channel, and not just Bill Dance's YouTube channel, but the playlist called Bloopers, Goof Ups, and Funny Moments. Hopefully I'm preaching to the choir, but if you haven't seen the blooper reels of Bill Dance um, fishing, you're really missing out. And if you haven't seen Bill Dance fishing, you're really missing out. I almost feel like not qualifying this anymore and just saying, um, go to Bill Dance Fishing on YouTube. If you just Google Bill Dance, you'll get it. Google. If you search Bill Dance on YouTube, you get it. But his name of his channel is Bill Dance Fishing, one word. Then go to his playlists and go to um, Goof Ups and, uh, and Bloopers and uh, prepare to just have some good, clean fun at poor Bill's expense. Um, but uh, in- enjoy. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.